Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to deal with the Gospel of St. John, verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. This is, in many ways, uh, a controversial part of, the, of John's Gospel. Many people feel it was kind of an addition onto the end, and others say, no, it's too consistent with his style and his message. But to us, that really is irrelevant, because right now it's part of the Gospel of St. John, and therefore it's worthy of our attention and our close attention. It's a story of when the disciples went back to Galilee, um, after the after what was for them a catastrophe in Jerusalem with the crucifixion and death of the Lord, the ongoing confusion about what it might mean that he had risen from the dead, the fact that there had already been eyewitness accounts of this, his resurrection, and although he seems to also have appeared to the disciples. There's still, it's interesting, because still in this gospel, there's a problem with recognition of who he is, which tells us something about the glorification of his humanity. But the story is, is that Peter decides to go fishing, and Thomas and James and John, um, and Nathaniel, I think, uh, agrees, um, agrees to go with him. And they fish all night, and they catch nothing. Now, this is something that's uh, not totally unusual for even professional fishermen, for them to have a very bad night, a very bad time. And here it seems that that's what happened. And as they were coming back into shore with their nets empty, there was a stranger standing on the shore. And he called out to them and says, have you caught, any, have you caught anything, friend? And when they answered no, he said, throw the net out to the starboard and you'll find something. So they dropped the net, and there were so many fish they could not haul it in. So the stranger on the shore, normal for fishermen, um, hollers out, throw it on the other side of the boat and see what you get then. And so they say, well, why not, you know? And so they do it. And they catch this enormous amount of fish. And it is John then that says, this is, this is the Lord, you know, this is this is a sign, a sign that the stranger on the shore is the Lord. Peter jumps into the water just because he feels he can swim faster than the boat, going dragging this net full of fish, and uh, and so he then arrives at the shore first. This is another first for Saint Peter. I think that this is something that's often misunderstood. The idea of the primacy of the Petrine witness within the New Testament. There is so much confusion about the resurrection stories. At one point, Mary Magdalene sees him and thinks he's the gardener. Um, at another point, and, and there's, a, there's a very fascinating Rembrandt painting of that, where Jesus is walking along with a gardener's hat on and a shovel in his hand. But, uh, but she, she doesn't know until he speaks to her who he is. And then another place in the gospel, she looks in the tomb and thinks they stole the body. She sees the empty tomb, but she doesn't make that connection to the resurrection. Yet Peter and John immediately do. They believe when they look in the empty tomb. 
and they believe when they see the man, even though they obviously he is not someone who looks completely familiar to them, which tells us something about, again, the glorification of the body. And so as soon as they came ashore, they saw that there was some bread there and a charcoal fire with fish cooking on it. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And Simon Peter went abroad and dragged the net to the shore full of big fish, 153 of them. And in spite of there being so many, the net was not broken. That many fish would have torn a net to shreds, but it didn't tear their net to shreds. That the number 153, everybody agrees that it's a symbolic number, but nobody knows a symbol of what. Um, It's very unusual to name, for instance, the number of fish and not mean something by it. But at least a a fundamental interpretation is the abundance. Because this is reminiscent in a way also of the multiplication of the loaves that... um, that they go from from virtually nothing to an abundance of something the uh, the story of the uh, of the multiplication of loaves um is seen generally accepted as a eucharistic text that the bread of life is so abundant that it is available to anybody who desires it, anybody who seeks it. Here is just another an example of outrageous abundance. And that that at least it, what, if we don't know the particular symbol of it, we certainly know that it is a symbol also of this idea that God's grace and God's goodness to us is so abundant that it overflows. We cannot consume it all. They couldn't eat 153 fish if they wanted to. Um, neither could the neither could the people following Jesus in the field eat as much bread as they got from him. That there was altogether too much for them, and that uh, they then, in that abundance, recognized the presence of the divine, the presence of God. And none of the disciples, however, even though they didn't know who Jesus was, that by recognition, they knew, they knew by sign and they knew by symbol. And they, they, they knew enough to say that they did not dare ask who you are because they would know for certain then, Jesus would know for certain then that they were lacking in faith for it is obvious who he was. But they knew quite well, the gospel says it was the Lord. And Jesus then stepped forward, took the bread and gave it to them and the same with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after rising from the dead. That um, Jesus then steps forward and he gives them the food that he has been cooking on the shore. That he gives them enough, an abundance to eat when they have been out all night long um, fishing and catching nothing. And then it says this is the third time and so this is a, this is a strange attempt, in a way, um, to try and um, and reconcile the the disparity of the of the stories of the resurrection by putting together three separate appearances to the disciples and saying this one is the third, referring to the one in, the ones in Jerusalem first, and then referring to this one now in Galilee. So there's been a break. And apparently they have not had communication with Jesus since leaving Jerusalem. 
And so the whole phenomenon is just still whirling around in their minds, and they don't know what to do except go back to work, which they have done. Then after the meal, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? And this is going to be an introduction to a very interesting piece of John's Gospel, because this is part of the proclamation of the primacy of St. Peter. Does he, as he, in his leadership position, does he love more than the rest? And Peter answers humbly, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, look after my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was upset that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus answered him, feed my sheep. This is the primacy narrative in John's gospel, that Peter, who had three times betrayed the Lord during the Passion, now has three times of of what we might call repentance or penance. He's, he's, he's undoing the damage he did with his denial by affirming his love for the Lord. And each time he does so, the Lord entrusts the church to him, entrusts his flock to him, entrusts his sheep to him, um, entrusts his, his lambs to him. So that what Matthew says so graphically in Matthew sixteen eighteen about the primacy of Peter John says in a more subtle way, in a way, and it's interesting too, because it is comes out of a spirit of repentance, that his, his leadership and his primacy within the church has to do with his humility and his repentance. That three times now, and this is an interesting thing too, you know, in the Middle Ages, <clears throat> If you go back through the the penitential books of the Middle Ages, what you find is that the normal the normal um, cure for sin, the normal penance for sin, is to do the opposite. They were very rigorous, for instance, in in the early Christian days. But if someone had committed adultery, then their penance was abstinence for X number of years, even sometimes. If someone had gotten drunk or committed gluttony, well, obviously fasting was the penance that was the solution. The opposite of the sin was the thing that brought that was the adequate penance and the, the penance for the person in order for them to be freed and receive the absolution, the forgiveness of the Lord. I wonder, and I'm not sure, but I wonder if it comes from this particular passage, passage passage in John's Gospel, where Peter three times denies, so now he must three times affirm. He must do the opposite three times of what he did wrong three times. But each time he does, the Lord invests him with his position. The Lord invests him with the position of leadership. But then the Lord goes on and says, you know, now you have, in a a way, repented of the sinfulness, the sinfulness of uh, of the denials. But now he says something very interesting. I tell you most solemnly that when you were young, you put on your own belt and you walked where you liked. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go. 
And that it becomes then an interpretation in the early church of telling Peter that he, when he gets old, that he will go where he would rather not go. And they saw this as a prediction of Peter's crucifixion in Rome, probably somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. But it's an interesting thing, an interesting observation about human nature as well. Young people are very independent, or seem very independent. They want to do their own thing, and they want to go their own way, and they want to be kind of in charge of their lives for a while. But when you grow old, you find that that's not really the ideal at all. The ideal is to learn to care and trust for others and let them assist you in the guidance and direction of your life. And if that goes in a direction that is difficult and unpleasant, well, then so be it. And for Peter, this is why the early church saw that for Peter, this was a foretelling of his crucifixion. It was a foretelling of his crucifixion because he is being taken somewhere where he would rather not go. While Jesus walked willingly to the cross, no one normally does that. Um, you certainly find people who do. You find Maximilian Kolbe, who willingly went into the starvation pit. You find others who will willingly place themselves in danger for the sake of the kingdom of God and suffer the consequences of that. But the normal thing is is that we, we don't seek that, and, uh, and we shouldn't seek that. If, if, if disaster comes our way, it comes our way. But to go out looking for it is not something that is a sign of a kind of a healthy faith, I don't think. That to, if the, when the Lord no longer has use for us, when the Lord can no longer use us for the proclamation, for the extension of the kingdom, the Lord has a tendency then to lead us, where oftentimes people would rather not go. And... Um, and, and I, I think that if we, we look so often in the Gospels, what we find is Jesus has an uncanny understanding of human nature. And this seems to me like, like an insight into human nature. Um, that we, we, we know, for instance, the behavior of the young and the, and the way the young think and do and so forth. And we also know the ways of the elderly. And sometimes they try to be young, but it doesn't work. Um, because they're not. And uh, what happens then is that things pull them in different directions. For, for many of the elderly, it's a sickness of some kind that draws them toward a place they don't, that draws them to a home or draws them to a hospital or, or whatever. Um, it's not something that they seek, and it's, so it's a place where they would rather not go. But if, in fact, it is where the Lord leads, then we walk that way and we go gracefully and thankfully to the Lord for all of the great gifts of the years that he has given us in which no matter how much we ourselves did not understand it or we misused that time, nevertheless, it was a gift from the Lord. And I don't know many people who say, gee, I hated my whole life. You know, it was a complete disaster. I, I know few people who would say that. They have found places of happiness and places of refuge along the way. And uh, they have found friendship, and they have found love, and they have found enjoyment, and they have found all those kinds of things, maybe sporadically, maybe some more than others. But everybody has some of that in their background, unless there's something terribly wrong. So that the Lord understands, and he wants Peter to understand that when the time comes... 
it will be the will of God, it will be the working of the Lord that takes him where he would not go in order that he might reign with the Lord forever in heaven. So we look through this gospel now and we see all this in the gospel and we can ask ourselves then, well, what, what, what does it all mean for us? Many of us are not fishermen, most probably not. Um, some are old and some are young. Um, and some are used to unusual events. So, so what about us? Where do we fit into the story? Where does it become something relevant for us? It's, it is relevant for us because it's a story of the Lord and the, all the stories of the Lord are part of our faith life and they were what sustains us interiorly. They are what sustains our soul, our belief, and all of that. But it seems to me that there are a number of things. First of all, in the ordinariness of life, there oftentimes comes a disruption of some kind. In the ordinariness of life, something wonderful might happen. In the ordinariness of life, we might catch a glimpse, we might catch an insight um, about the faith, about the Lord Jesus' presence to us. And, and these things might, might give us great encouragement and might, might you know, deepen our faith life and give us more incentive to live it well um, and to practice it fully. So that the idea of, an, of a surprising interruption into the ordinary fl- ebb and flow of, of human life is, is something that the Christian should be very much aware of because there are definitely times when the presence and the power of, Lord, of the Lord reaches into our pathways. And in such times there is, can be illumination, there can be joy, there can be wisdom, there can be all those things. Fleeting as it might be, St. Teresa of Jesus says that, uh, <clears throat> that these things happen quickly if they happen, and that uh, we should be prepared then to respond to that, those events in prayer. Um, the next thing, too, is this idea of the abundance. Um, the Eucharist is, is, is so much greater than we are that despite the fact that we receive it in a very small form, it is the totality of the risen Lord. It is the wholeness of Christ. We say and have said it's flesh and blood, um, soul and divinity. Um, so, so, yes... We have an encounter each time we go to the Eucharist with the risen Lord, exactly as the apostles did on the shores of Galilee. We didn't have to wait several weeks um, for, for that second. We can go daily if we wish to. And at least weekly we should go. And, um, you know, this, this going to Mass on Sunday is kind of becoming optional. It's not, it's not realistic at all. If the Lord of the universe invites you to encounter him and let him enter into you and you into him, and you say, no, gee, sorry, I don't have time, that's a rather serious rebuke of God himself. And while it seems to us just kind of skipping something that we, got, that we do most of the time, but I'm not going to do it today or whatever, or it's a bright sunny day, I think I'll just you know go for a run or something instead, that we, we can't trivialize it. And that's part of the power of this particular story. They couldn't trivialize their encounter with the Lord because it had an, a consequence of abundance in their life. They were able to bring in 153 large fish. <clears throat> 
an, an incredible haul for for anyone on on the Sea of Galilee, on the Lake of Tiberias, as it's it's called here. Um, it's it's really um, that we we should be willing to accept from the God from our God an abundance of grace, an abundance of mercy, an abundance of love. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't close ourselves off to him, but we should be so open to him that if when he desires to overwhelm us with his gifts, we are capable and willing and desirous of receiving them. So I think the theme of abundance, which we get also from the story of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, that that this idea that of just the the hugeness of the divine presence in our world and in our lives is something that should strike us at least every once in a while where we see ourselves kind of floating in a sea of divinity and we know that the Lord is looking after us. Even when he doesn't do things our way, he is still looking after us. We're aware of that. We're grateful for that. And then the next thing, what do we do with Simon Peter's um, repentance, where Simon Peter three times affirms that which he denied three times, and thus bringing himself, bringing himself back and into, into the graces of the presence of the Lord. I think that first of all, we understand that when Christ handed the church over to human beings, he did not hand it over to human beings who were perfect. Peter sinned gravely in denying the Lord. I don't know how many times we want to look into our lives and say, by our behavior or by our words, we have denied the Lord also. Um, But it wasn't a terminal denial for Peter. It wasn't a terminal sin for Peter. He was able then, he was given the opportunity in God's mercy and goodness to repent of that. And in his repentance then, to step into the position of leadership in the church that the, Jesus did not did not um, conv- give the primacy in the church to a man who was without sin and to a man who was perfect. Um, as we go through, one of the things that, that anti-Catholics try to use against us is, is the scandals that have accompanied the papacy from very early days on. And uh, say, see, how can you say that this is, you know, of the Lord? Well, we'll go back to Peter. How can you say that? We pray that those popes who who have been unfaithful, that that those popes repent and uh, and affirm the opposite before they die. But nevertheless, we have no right to expect perfection. We have no right to expect perfection perfection in the popes and the bishops and the priests and the religious in one another in the laity within our families and so forth. How often do we find his family break up because either the husband or the wife is imperfect and their imperfections rise up within the family and cause dissension and division and hardship? So I think that's a very important thing. And I think the second thing is, is to realize that those people who give their lives over to the Lord are submitting to the Lord and allowing him to lead them wherever they would take, wherever the Lord would take them. For Peter, it is in the interpretation of this gospel of the early church. For Peter, it is the cross um, and his crucifixion. The, the tradition being that he was begged to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy of dying the way the Lord died. 
Um, but whatever, whatever happened, that this, um, this position that Peter was in brought with it hardship and suffering and martyrdom. And I think, what do we get out of this, out of this, I tell you most solemnly, when you were young, you put on your own belt and walked where you liked, and when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will put a belt around you and take you where you would not go. The understanding of the ages of humanity, the story of of the youth and old age, what happens, you know, even to the most vital and the most vibrant of youth, when they grow old, they nevertheless are unable to basically um, be self-sustaining. They need care and they need affection and they need leadership and they need assistance in many of the daily things that they do. And I think it's a wonderful thing when the young see that and realize that and reach out to assist them in their needs, to steady them or to help them and so forth. So that, yeah, he understands human nature um, because it belongs to him, because he took it upon himself. But we ourselves might want to think back about our own lives, especially, especially the elderly who don't like where they are in life. Um, I think this is a great meditation for them um, when, in fact, they're simply bemoaning their youth or being angry about what's happening and so forth. Remember, when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hand and somebody else will put a belt around you and take you where you, where you would rather not go. That you are going to be um, in the hands of younger people and that they will do with you what they think best and what they think is most, is most suitable. And it might not be something that you like at all. And so we learn then to be kind of appreciative. Even when their care brings us hardship, at least we should be appreciative of their care. Certainly Peter, as he went to the cross, was appreciative of the care of Jesus, and yet here he was going to be crucified upside down. And then um, it says in the Gospel, in these words, Jesus indicated the kind of death by which Peter would give glory to God. And, uh, and isn't that interesting, that the Gospel itself sees this as a, pre, as a prefiguration or a, a prediction of the, uh, of the crucifixion of Peter? And after this, he said, follow me. I mean, there is the message of the gospel very succinctly. Follow me. We dare not say, the gospel is inadequate for us. We're going to create our own. We're not going to do what the German Synod is doing and say, you know, well, we don't like the way things were, so we're going to create something new. Sociology and psychology um, does not does not create a pathway into the etern- into eternal life. It is not the seat of all wisdom, nor is it the seat of great abundance or of all benevolence. No, we follow the Lord, and when it leads us where we would rather not go, then we go there anyway, out of our love for and obedience to Jesus Christ, whom we know in His abundant love will take us safely into his kingdom. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.
bad, who bad?